Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up the text here in Genesis 16, verse 10. We find ourselves in the middle of the second main point of this entire narrative, which we are subsuming under the label, a tale of weak faith. Verses 1 to 6, we saw that attempting to help God can lead to complications. And then in 7 to 15, which is where we are now, we said that God is merciful in spite of our sin. And the first thing that we looked at was that in spite of sin, life goes on and God still works with us and desires our obedience. That's what we've begun to delve into here verses nine or seven, eight, and nine. Now, we also have this idea that in spite of sin, life goes on and God still works, but we're also supposed to do the right thing. That was kind of where we ended in verse nine. Return to your mistress, he says to Hagar, and submit to her. Sarai did the wrong thing, but Hagar bore some responsibility for that as well. She held Sarai in dishonor. She needed to submit to her. Now in verse 10, uh, we continue with the text. After the angel of the Lord, which is a Christophany here, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, says, return to your mistress and submit to her. In verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, or Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Takes us down through verse 12 there. What we see here, starting in verse 10, is that there is a promise of protection in spite of sin. Now, this isn't guaranteed, but we see here that God can do this and maybe sometimes does. And for me, it reminds me of a general principle of Scripture, not just principle, but truth, where we see that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, there are the mysterious ways of God subsumed under this as well. It's not just long-suffering here. He didn't have to bless her and guarantee that she would have offspring that could not be numbered for their multitude. He didn't have to do that. Uh, but it does show us in principle that God loves life and he loves uh the creative creative process uh, within the earth and that he was going to use these people and be glorified uh, throughout the generations that would follow in not only some of them converting to Christ, but using them to bring discipline upon his own people and for trials uh, of faith in the world. I, there's all sorts of things here uh, that we could, you know, plumb out and only eternity will be able to tell us where, where God will be able to fully disclose why it is that Ishmael's descendants, uh, you know, were so multitudinous. So there is a promise of protection that he gives to Hagar in spite of her sin. And uh, you can't say that it's to Sarai. I mean, it's it's nice that according to the custom of the day that they were able to 
have a child uh, that way socially, but now there's going to be this long longevity here. So he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And what that says to Hagar is she's sitting out there with no food, no water, and no ability to provide for herself is that not only would she be safe, but her child would be safe. She knew she was pregnant at this time, right? He says that you are pregnant and shall bear a son, you know, so that is going to ensure that she is at least going to live for a time. But not only would she live to see her child born, but that her child would be safe and grow up and have children of his own. So her child would have many offspring. So there's a blessing of life and God delights in life. And it also proves to us and, and shows here, uh, it's not explicit, but there is something to be said and held in honor that each human being is an image bearer of God. Of course, that takes us all the way back to chapter one of this book, but all of these descendants of Ishmael are going to bear the image of God. Now, unfortunately, the offspring of Ishmael do not prove in the long run to be a blessing to the true son of promise to Abraham, uh, that is Isaac, and subsequently to Israel, uh, but there is a general principle to be observed. And then there is a command here, uh, also in verse 11, you shall call his name Ishmael, which means the Lord hears. And so that's an interesting name there. A lot of these names have significance when, when something uh, pivotal happens, monumental happens, often a place is named for that action. And here the name Ishmael uh, means the Lord hears. Uh, but it's not just that the Lord hears, he's going to have a specific type of character. That's verse 12. And the angel of the Lord here says he will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And uh, th that's interesting. So quite a, a statement of his character. He is not going to be pleasant to be around. Uh, and he is really going to be at enmity with everyone around him. Yet in spite of that, the Lord would ensure his word. Hagar's not going to be able to do anything to ensure that he lives through all of that, and nor is anyone else. But regardless of the enemies he makes, he is still going to survive and live to see children of his own. So that's very interesting. So there's this promise of protection in spite of sin, verses 11 and 12, uh, 10, 11, and 12 there. And then we see worship. Uh, worship, which is uh, accomplished through recognizing God's acts and obeying him. And this is, again, this is Hagar here. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me or who sees me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lehi Roy, and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So there's worship uh, in verse 13. She calls on the name of the Lord, and, and she addresses him by his action, that namely he is the one who sees her. Bir Lehi Roy, the well of the living one who sees me, is the way we could literally translate that, the well of the living one who sees me. And then we see the fulfillment of God's word. She's newly pregnant, 
and we see that she goes back and she bears Abram a son. So she's not just out in the wilderness and no one knows what happens to her. And this son is Abram's son, but there's a total fulfillment of the word. And contrary to culture, if you think about this, who would have had naming rights? It would have been the father, right? Abram is the master of his own household. He has the ability to give names. And we even see this in the New Testament with the account of John the Baptist's parents. Remember, his father, Zechariah, is serving in the temple, and he doubts uh, the, what the angel of the Lord reveals to him, that he and his wife, you know, his wife who has been barren and they have not had any children, and she's past childbearing years as well, Elizabeth, that they would have a child. And he laughs and, you know, and, and, and doubts, right? And he says how, I don't, I don't remember if he laughs or not. I'm going off the top of my head here, uh, but he doubts. And he says, well, what will be the sign? And basically the angel says, well, because you doubt, here's the sign. Uh, you're not going to be able to speak until my words come true. And then of course that happens. And he now has several months where he learns to communicate through a writing tablet and on all of that. And then when the child is finally born, they expect that the child is going to be named by the father and in the custom of the family, probably Zechariah or Zechariah or something like that. And Elizabeth says his name is John. They're like, that can't be right. There's no one in your family named John. So they go to Zechariah and say, what will his name be? And he says, you know, give me a tablet to write on. And he writes his name is John, at which point he is able to speak again. And I say all of that because it shows us who it is that has the ability and, and the authority to name in that culture. And so you really have to think here that there's a lot behind the scenes happening as the Lord fulfills his word, as Hagar worships the Lord, she calls upon his name. He's revealed a lot to her, and it seems that not only does she go back right? Because now she bears Abram a son, but she must have communicated what the Lord had revealed to her at this time. That, you know, the promise of God that that this son would be born to him and that he would go on and have children of his own and so forth. But not only that, but also the name. He will be called Ishmael, the Lord hears. And she would have no doubt communicated this story to him and this account and to Sarai as well. So very fascinating here that God is able to bring all of that about. And Abram at this point in his life is understanding that the Lord is revealing himself and has done incredible things in his life and Sarai's life and delivered them already, not only from their land, you know, their previous home far away, but has delivered them out of the hands of their enemies and, and people who had the potential to do them great harm when they were in foreign lands like Egypt and given him military victory over some of the kings in the area, all of those things. He's recognizing that God is, has his hand here in his life and has even appeared to him just before this as well and promised him many things and made a covenant with him and all of that. And so when Hagar comes to him and says, okay, I was out in the wilderness. I thought I was going to die. And the Lord came to me and gave me these promises. And this is why I have returned to submit myself to my mistress, uh, to, to Sarai, and also to you. And here is your son, and this is what you are to call him. We see the word of the Lord absolutely being fulfilled there. Very fascinating. Uh, do I, do, do I know, will we see Hagar in heaven? I have no idea. Um, 
She called the name of the Lord. You are the God of seeing the uh, beer Lehi Roy. Um, d- is that indicative of saving faith? I mean, usually you wouldn't do something unless you believed it. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting uh, whether we see Hagar in heaven or not. Now, one interesting thing to note here as the chapter ends in verse 16 is that Abram was 86 years old. Now, that's pretty old. Uh, Now, he's going to live to be a lot older than the typical age today. Right now, he's at the median age, uh, actually a little bit older than than the median lifespan of somebody here in the United States, uh, both males and females, I believe. Uh, the male lifespan is a little bit shorter. I think it's in the mid 70s, uh, 74, 75, and females are just a couple years older than that. So he's already well past that. So old to be having a child. Remember, he's 10 years older than his wife. So his wife is 76. She still doesn't have any children. But as you recall, if you go ahead in your mind to where the scriptures you know, go from here, when the son of promise is granted to them, Abram is 100 when Isaac is born and Sarai, Sarai is 90. And if we just do the math here, that means that he's got 14 years now to see this son that is born to the handmaiden of Sarai, to, to Hagar, 14 years to, to see his faith mature even more. Now, he's already gone through several things in his life that are, have been maturing for his faith, but now he's going to have 14 years to see this child weaned, and to begin to grow up and to begin to learn and all of those things and to see those character traits that were declared by the angel of the Lord begin to emerge in in Ishmael's life, 14 years are going to pass to bring his faith to maturity for the great test that he is going to undergo. At this point in his life, does he demonstrate faith by naming the child Ishmael? Of course. Is he ready to have Isaac right now and then subsequently uh, to, to obey the Lord, to, to take Isaac up to the mountain and be prepared to sacrifice him? Uh, probably not. And it shows that the Lord's timing is perfect. And also, we don't want any, any possible indication that this is of man at all. I mean, it's got to be the, the, the miracles of the Lord to bring about a nation and to bring about uh, the Son of God through the incarnation. It's all got to be of the Lord. And so it's, it's incredible. I do believe that this test here is really paving the way uh, for Abram's most incredible test of faith, which will be the sacrifice of his son, or at least the willingness to sacrifice his son. And I think that in him learning this terribly difficult lesson, he's being groomed for that, that big trial of his faith. And that is going to have a very different outcome. When the Lord says something, even though I don't understand it, I'm going to do it. Here, the Lord had said, I'm going to do this. He said, I don't understand it. His wife said, I don't understand it. She came up with a counter proposal. And rather than him saying, no, honey, I think we should trust the Lord. He's like, okay, let's go with it. When God says, I want you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac, at that point, he has learned the lesson. He can probably look back 14 years in the past and say, you know, the last time we did this, it, it had a very different outcome, and I, I don't think we want to go through that again. Well, that brings us to the end of our chapter and the end of this discussion. I had closed this out when I had preached this by quoting a hymn by William Cowper, who wrote this hymn somewhere near the end of the 18th century, so in the later 1700s. 
1773, 74, somewhere around there. This was one of the last hymns he ever wrote. And the story behind this last hymn goes that he wanted to end his life by jumping in the Thames River. And he called a cabbie, and of course this would be a horse-drawn carriage, but the thick fog settled down and prevented them from finding the way to the river. And when the cabbie stopped to let him back out, it was right back at his doorstep. And they didn't even know that. And the name of this hymn is God Moves in Mysterious Ways. So here's what he says. He says in stanza one, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Second stanza, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, his, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Third, ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Four, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Five, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And last, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Great hymn by William Cowper that really uh, captures this idea of God's mysterious ways, which I think is also a theme that has been so dominant uh, in this chapter. We'll pick it up next time as we dive in to chapter 17. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net. Mm-hmm.